A warm welcome to the Creative Places and Faces podcast, the podcast that explores places that help to inspire creativity. Some are local, some even formative, and others are far away and sometimes rather exotic. I'm Mike Payne, one of the Creative Places and Faces team. Let me introduce you to your host, Jackie DeBurka. Jackie is originally from Dublin, Ireland, but has spent a lot of time abroad, especially in Spain. She is the author of Salvador Dali at Home, creator of Travel Inspires, and the number one travel and tourism influencer, Q2 2020, according to Global Data. Over to you, Jackie. Today's guest was described as a force of nature by BBC journalist Chris Lindsay. This force of nature is the award-winning author and poet from Belfast, Maeve O'Lynn. Amongst her many achievements, Maeve has won the TU Short Story Competition at Redline Book Festival in Dublin in 2019. She was also long-listed for the Seamus Heaney Award for New Writing in 2019. Maeve has published short fiction and poetry in Banshee, The Stinging Fly, Fallow Media, The Honest Ulsterman, Abridged and The Tangerine. Maeve, you're really welcome today. Is it as cold a day there in Belfast as it here as it is here in Spain? Yeah, pretty frosty. I would venture that it might be colder. Really? What de- what degrees are you dealing with there, Maeve, today? Well, I'm not too sure of the number on the thermostat, but I've just been out for a walk and it's very slippy and slidey out there, very freezing. Okay. So we, we're probably, which is ridiculously cold for the area of Spain that I'm in. It's probably about three degrees Celsius here today, which is like really cold for, for this neck of the woods. Yeah. But anyhow, that's not to be waffling on for too long about the weather. <laughs> Let's jump in with what I feel is a crucial question, Maeve. How closely is your creative output connected to your local and favourite environments? Um. Well, Jackie, I think place is crucial because, you know, if you can capture place well, you can transport the reader and you can have them see your world through their eyes. So it's a really special and powerful thing, I think. Okay, okay, perfect. And tell me something, Maeve, when and where were you born? Um, I was born in the Royal Victoria Hospital in West Belfast in 1984. Okay. Okay. So you're a spring chicken compared to myself then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 1968. Oh, no. <laughs> um, what kind of childhood memories do you have of Belfast? You were growing up, obviously, 80s into the 90s. What, what are your memories of Belfast from those days? Yeah. Um, so Belfast in the 80s and the early 90s was, um, in many ways, a very different place to the city today. Um, I spent a lot of time with my mum's parents when I was very young and my parents were out working and my granddad had had a heart bypass operation when I was about two or three and as part of his recovery he had to go out for these long walks every day and I used to go out on these walks with him and we'd go all around Anderson's Town up to the corner shop to get sweets and buy the paper and down to the busy bee to the chapel past Casement Park and I find it both very strange and also very comforting that I am now walking these same streets with my own children, especially during these lockdown times when we're all staying closer to home and I get to walk past my grandparents' old house and it sort of feels like time has come full circle and the two cities exist at once. So the one I remember through the eyes of my much younger self and the one I see today and the topographies diverge and overlap. 
Okay. I think that must be really uh, beautiful for you to have that kind of melting together of three generations of your family, Maeve. Yeah, it's really, um, it's really special. Um, and it's not something I kind of, I suppose when I was younger, I didn't necessarily picture that I would spend so much of my life um, in Belfast and in this very same locale. But it's something that just feels really right. And there's a real sense of home to me here. Okay. Okay. So you're, you're, you're one of those people in the series up to now, you're one of those people who really, you feel like you were born in the place that was right for you to be born, that it kind of nurtures you? Yeah, I mean, I think it sounds surprising um, for many people to hear that you were born in the kind of middle of the 1980s um, in West Belfast and that that would feel like a nurturing place. But I think, um, yeah, there is a real sense of community and a real sense of home. And it's been lovely to kind of spend so much time here and watch the city evolve and change um, in the same way that, of course, we ourselves are evolving and changing all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And as a child, obviously, if you were spending quite a lot of time with your grandfather, uh, would that have been a little bit similar to, to down in the south of Ireland, where maybe you were hearing a lot of stories from a man like that or or, or, or not? Oh, yeah, he was a great storyteller. He had a brilliant imagination. We used to sit and he would pretend that he was a bus driver in the living room of my grandparents' house and we would be driving off on all these magical adventures and he'd be describing to me all these um, things we could see from the window and these sights. And um, my granny did oil colour paintings as well. So she had these lovely paintings around the house and they used to talk about little cottages by the shore that they were going to someday retire to. And it's something that's really comforting. Um, now that they are both gone, I kind of picture them there together. Oh, that's really beautiful. That's really beautiful, Maeve. So the artistic uh, influence of your grandparents, that, that seems like it was very significant and strong. Did they encourage you to start writing or are there other family members or school teachers who also played important roles in your creativity? Um, I think, well, my mum was always and continues to be a great champion of my writing and a recommender of books. Um, She, Mm -hmm. like me, she's an English teacher and she spent my childhood making laminated flashcards to teach me and my sister to read long before things like that were fashionable and taking us to the library and buying us entirely inappropriate but amazing books like Jane Eyre with the gothic red rooms and the heaving passion Um, these days. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> these days I suppose my mum she would come to my readings and she buys me lovely books as presents and um, you'd also hear the vocal talents of my sister who is an mm-hmm. incredible actor and a singer in a lot of the audio work I put together um, so it's great to be able to collaborate with someone who knows your vision and your strange imagination so well that she needs hardly any direction to bring the work to life. That's that's fantastic. And is your sister younger or older? What's the age difference uh, between the two of you, Maeve? She is younger than me. Um, my sister Susan, she's five years younger. Okay, okay. That's that's lovely that you can collaborate with somebody so close to you. Yeah, it's been really, really nice. Um, and we have worked together on all sorts of different things from the Xenophon project. Um, and she has been the voice of kind of the far distant future in some of our audio installations. And at the moment, um, we're working together on an audio which will be ready hopefully later in 2021 as well. Okay, that's that's great. And at what age did you notice or do you remember sometimes as adults, it's hard to kind of delve back into your childhood 
and be very specific about age. But do you have any special memories about like really being writing creative stories, your imagination as a child, anything well, like that? I always love to read, but I suppose I began writing in earnest around the age of about eight when I began a series of these kind of imaginary travelogues in my exercise books in school, in which my sort of avatar, me of the explorer, set off to visit um, exotic and unlikely locations around the world, haunted castles and the Bermuda Triangle in search of the Loch Ness Monster. And... (laughs) After that, I was I was addicted. And though it waxes and wanes, depending on what else is going on in my life, I find that I always come back to both reading and writing over and over again. Okay. And as a younger person, you know, did you have authors that you feel were important during your formative reading years? Um, as a child, I loved Irish myths and legends. And novels like um, The Bookshop on the Quay and The Turf Cutter's Donkey by Patricia Lynch. And then mm-hmm. I think I was just about the right age for Marita Conlon McKenna's Under the Hawthorne Tree trilogy. And okay. I find that I still, I like, I love the evocative drama of a family saga that takes place somewhere rainy and wild. <laughs> okay. Well, you were certainly born in the right place for that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, as a child, you also spent some time in the Gaeltacht Loch Loch Honor. I hope I pronounced it correctly, in Donegal. What impact do you think that this beautiful place and also made the practice of speaking Gaelic or Irish uh, have in you? Now, um, Donegal, that really is a place that is rainy and wild. Um, my dad's mum, she was a native Irish speaker from the Irish Peninsula in Mayo. And she met my grandfather, who was from Belfast, when he was down on a fishing holiday. And I often think what it must have been like for her to leave this remote rural area by the sea and settle in Belfast, um, which was such a different way of life, a different language, a whole different rhythm. Um, Mm -hmm. sadly she died quite young when my dad was just a teenager so I never had the chance to get to know her but I did find that learning to speak Irish albeit the Donegal dialect um, was a way to sort of understand how she must have thought and felt Um, but me personally I suppose I don't associate lovely musical cadences of Irish um, purely with rural Ireland though um, I'm very proud to live in an urban Gaeltacht area and although Mm -hmm. I certainly can't claim to be fluent I think it is a great thing to hear and to see the language grow um, sort of Briwar August Bio from the city to the sea. Mm -hmm. Okay um yeah, I did one one year myself as a ten year old in Colossian Arena, and uh, <laughs> so I have, like yourself, I well, obviously at this stage of my life, I wouldn't have have hardly any fuckles coming easily, <laughs> <laughs> but but I have a great grow. Uh, I translate yeah. that for the non Irish people is a great love for the for the language, and I absolutely connect with what you've just said. You know, um, what are the places, Maeve, that would have been important in your younger life do you remember today um well um i went off to study in glasgow as an Mm -hmm. 18 year old and the four years i spent there were really incredible times 
Um, I spent a lot of time walking around that city as a daydreamy English lit student. Um, we're very prone to that type of thing. Um, off going to my classes, off to the library and my litany of various part-time jobs, as well as kind of going to the free galleries, the festivals, the vintage clothes shops, and of course the pubs too. Um, <laughs> in Glasgow, I, I wrote for the student paper and I had the chance to run a club night with like live music with two of my very good friends there. And my whole time there um, has left a really indelible imprint with the energy and the noise and the creativity of the city and the people there. Mm -hmm. Okay. What, which, which of your stories, I've forgotten the name, excuse me, uh, where you're making your way back from you're making your way back over to the north and you're very badly hungover. Yeah, yeah. True story. <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of that one? May, please remind me. Uh, no, that one has a few different names it's gone by, but um, it's sort of it's um, in the honest Ulsterman and I believe it's um, something to do with the water. Um, that title That's right. That story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can't remember. It's not back in the back in the water. It's something like along those lines. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, I loved that. <laughs> um, so out of all the places that are connected with your younger years, which of those have featured in your creative works to date, Maeve? You know, I suppose, obviously, I would write a lot about Belfast and about Ireland more generally. I mean, I spend so much of my time here. Um, mm -hmm. I wrote a piece that was published in an abridged publication as part of the virtual Galway 2020 program. And it's set mainly in Galway um, following mm -hmm. a residency I did there a few years ago at one of the science departments in the university. And there's a passage in there about the journey between the two cities, between Belfast and Galway, that maybe encapsulates for a lot of people a lot of kind of Irish road trips and travel and all the types of borders you cross as you go. Um, would you like to yeah, would you like to read that for us? Yeah. Um, okay. Let me just the first drops of rain hit the windscreen around Craigavon and they both subsided into silence punctuated by the occasional staccato burst of small talk. As they bypassed Newry and Sleeve Gullion, onto the long section of road, fringed with evergreens, the digital radio signal began to fade out, coming in fits and starts, the ghostly sounds of the BBC struggling to reach the hinterlands of its oldest and closest colony. The drive to Galway was beset by hundreds of shifting borders, north to south, city to country, east to west, and of course, the toll roads. She fished frequently in the centre console for coins to throw into automated baskets. After an awkward encounter with the human cashier, who looked as taken aback by the aggressive tunes on the stereo as Simon was, the CD mercifully began skipping, and she took the opportunity to substitute her brother's encyclopedic collection of EDM for Kamazi Washington. A warm, exuberant blues fanfare serenaded their arrival to the rolling golden emptiness of the Midlands. Nothing but GAA pitches and farmland for miles. Over her, Asim was struck by the sudden appearance of dark birds against a pale sky. A rolling murmuration of starlings in stark contrast to the quiet fields beneath. That's absolutely beautiful. I really enjoyed that. And also for me, Maeve, because 
right now I haven't been able to get back to Ireland because of the lockdown and not being able to travel safely. Yeah. Uh, that particular passage is, is very, <laughs> is very reminiscent of my own journeys in Ireland. So I really enjoyed to hear that. Um, going, going back to Belfast, Maeve, imagine if Belfast was like a boyfriend or a husband or a girlfriend or a partner of some sort. How would you describe the relationship of you and Belfast as it is now and how it has actually developed over the years? Um, well, it's a difficult analogy in the sense that it is really difficult to have an objective and fair sort of view of your hometown, particularly when you still live there. Um, mm -hmm. I suppose you know it inside out and there's things that you love about it, things that you hate, things that you're bored of and things that you forget to appreciate. But somewhere, somewhere along the way, um, you've changed from being the child and the teenager discovering the city for yourself and you become the person introducing the city to your own children. Um, it's mm -hmm. a place that you work in and it's a place that in some ways you feel sort of responsible for. Um, I wrote a passage in a story which is called The International Language of Space that was published in The Tangerine a couple of years ago that I felt captured that sort of in between mood when you're no longer in the first flush of excitement of the freedom and independence of being an adult in the city and you begin to kind of realize the difficulties that come along with it the need to earn your own money find a place mm -hmm. to live build your own network of friends beyond the people that you've known since school um all of those things and okay yeah would, would, yeah do, do you mind reading another passage out for us that'd be that'd be great Maeve okay okay um let me just find it. Here we go. Joe awoke, or maybe more accurately came to, lying on his stomach, mouth dry, head tight, duvet bunched up down near his feet. The room, his room, was cold. When they had signed the lease on this first floor flat in May, the clouds of blossom on the tall trees and the soft light of the long South Belfast evenings pouring in the sash windows had made the high ceilings and general air of genteel decay seem bohemian. Then it got to Halloween and the nights drew in, the weather got bitter and they realised the single glazed glass and the soaring ceilings and the unused fireplaces meant the flat was, in fact, permanently cold. Even when they remembered to top up the gas card and put the heating on, there was always a faint hint of damp. Not that they'd had the heating on recently. Between Christmas coming up and extra shifts at work and nights out on the lash, nobody had been in much except to sleep and shower. The chill in the air signified, perhaps, the Victorian red brick's frosty regard for their uncouth behaviour. The house had a name. Adeline. The Lisbon Road for the festive season was bedecked in blue lighting that seemed to be on around the clock. Not red, green or gold, blue. All snowflakes and stars, the alien blue and silver light they shed seemed cold and distant, like a transmission from the furthest reaches of space. Joe noticed belatedly that outside it had started to snow. He walked through it, past the corner shop, which had apparently closed already, and onto the supermarket further down the road. On his way back to Adeline, carrying a few ready meals, 
a bag of tortilla chips, a Mars bar, rolling tobacco skins and a six pack he would enjoy in bed tomorrow, TV on. He saw parents carrying presents from car boots and garden sheds through flurries of snow into their houses, where children slept fitfully awaiting Christmas Day. The nighttime streets were pockmarked with icy puddles, and Joe idly imagined he was a cosmonaut on a spacewalk, teetering on the edge of the abyss, tethered but barely. Wonderful, Maeve. Thank you very much again. Um, now, hopping into something that you mentioned far, far earlier on in our chat, um, since 2015, you've actually been collaborating with the visual artist Siobhan McGibbon on the Xenophon project. Can you tell us a bit about the project and how it all came about, please? Yes, of course. Um well, I have been working with Siobhan and actually, I must say, Dr. Siobhan McGiven, who recently passed her PhD viva right in the middle of this whole pandemic. So great wow. congratulations <laughs> to Siobhan. Um, I have been working with Siobhan on our interdisciplinary sort of post-future eco-feminist collaboration um, since we were introduced by our good friend, the curator and editor, Greg McCartney who is the mastermind behind Abridged and the Honest Ulsterman and a plethora of other artistic endeavours as well. Um, mm -hmm. Greg had curated Siobhan's work previously and she had contacted him saying that she wanted to um, meet a writer who had an interest in the gothic and gender to write an essay for a catalogue to accompany a series of new work she had completed in 2015 for a show in, um, I think it was Galway City Museum. But... Mm -hmm. Um, as so Greg put me and Siobhan in touch but then as we worked together this sort of evolved from being an essay for a catalogue into a creative response series of found audio pieces instead and before we knew it we had sort of created this entire universe of time slip dystopia utopia and ritual practice which is the Xenophon project okay <laughs> that's that's uh yeah I I I was looking at some of the information about it and I have to say as a female I found it quite fascinating and also the fact that in 2019 Maeve um, there was the life with life inside that was partially inspired by Cove and County Cork can can you let us know how that happened? Well our show Xenophon Life with Life Inside was um, on in the Sirius Arts Centre in Cove in Cork and we loved the idea of Cove for three different reasons I suppose. So firstly the Sirius Arts Centre is a beautiful and very grand building with huge windows um, for all this beautiful light um, but it's right on the water and mm -hmm. a huge part of the invented world of Xenophon is related to water and um, these ideas of submersion, cleansing, baptism, birth and evolution. And so that was something, you know, Cove's place right on, on the sea was quite important to us. And we were also very moved by Cove's history as a port for so many Irish emigrants um, who were leaving their home in huge numbers, often because, you know, they had no other options and they were setting out on these very uncertain and dangerous journeys to their distant and much hoped for futures and new lives. And 
I suppose, in the Xenophon project. Um, in our work, we want to take people on journeys to distant realms of the imagination, um, exploring aspects of our lives, particularly the lives of women, which are very much rooted in the present. Um, the Life with Life Inside show drew upon the long journey towards reproductive freedom and the new context that this gave to motherhood in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And finally, too, I suppose we were really interested in in a Shinnok, um, the island in Cork Harbour, which is very visible from Cove, that has so long been emblematic of our casual disregard of the planet and its ecosystems, with the island's reputation as being one of the country's worst polluted former industrial sites. And right, yeah, yeah. that's just something we find really interesting as well. Mm, okay. Um Yes, I haven't been to Cove for far too long now. It's an absolutely gorgeous, a gorgeous part of Ireland, oh, obviously. Yeah. Talking about water, <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a question that's come up with one or two of, of the guests, Maeve. Um, if asked about water and creativity, what's, what, what are your own feelings? Not, I'm not necessarily talking about female creativity, just creativity in general. I think particularly for anybody, whether you're a writer or a musician or an artist, if you live on an island, even if you're kind of inland, Ireland is a small island and you have this constant sense of the sea wherever you go. And it sort of seems to seep into your work, sometimes whether you're conscious of it or not. And there's something so hypnotic and mesmerizing about watching the water sort of come in and come out, whether that's a lake or a river or in so many cases um, alongside the sea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, that's, that's actually a really interesting point about Ireland uh, that I never thought about before. You, you also said to me, Maeve, um, that you did a, a fair bit of exploring of Ireland when you had just your two boys, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was a few years ago. Um, we had a, yeah. a camper van, yeah. Okay, and you travelled, where, where did you go to in Ireland in, in your camper van? Oh, my word. Well, the 1989 camper van was almost a sort of member of the family in its own right. And it was um, a really temperamental member of the family that was prone to kind of giving up in various highways and byways across rural Ireland. So we ended up spending time unexpectedly in all sorts of places while lovely Lithuanian men fixed broken parts of it outside Kilkenny and you know it just <laughs> taught you to travel at a very different pace um I'd say we really saw the length and breadth of Ireland we were down in West Cork um in Skibbereen we were in Kilkenny um Wicklow um Coney Island outside Ardglass and right up in the north coast in Castle Rock as well um and we took it to France so it really got a, a fair bit of action um and I suppose well the time I spend The time I spent with my family is really precious to me and nothing makes us happier than these sort of long walks on the beach and just time outdoors. Um, Mm -hmm. But I was thinking, you know, along the the lines of like the amount of travel you get to do and conversely, the luxury and privilege of just spending time right by the sea in your camper van or now we have a, a static caravan, listening to the waves. It always makes me think of, families who are not so very different from mine and not so far away either, who are having to enter the sea under the most harrowing and dangerous circumstances. And I suppose, Mm -hmm. um, you know, 
it seems maybe like a, a kind of dark way to look at it, but it's just this kind of recognition of the, the privilege we have, I suppose, and maybe the responsibility upon us to, you know, be better citizens um, in the world and to be more empathetic and more welcoming to people who find themselves in these dire straits and so I suppose this is where um, a poem I wrote called An Ocean Just as Hungry came from um, which was published in the mighty Slago literary broadsheet The Cormorant Um, and I can read that for you if you would like. That'd be great Maeve, thank you. An Ocean Just as Hungry I always thought I liked the sea until the week we spent in Kerry. At night, you could hear the waves, and in the morning, and everywhere you walked or drove, the relentless, ebbing, flowing, needy tides crashing. They told us the story of an English artist who rented the house to do his paintings, and the German lady on holiday with her two young sons who asked him where the beach was, the one in the picture. He told them, and they went to the beach, and one of the boys was swept out to sea, and his mother drowned, trying to save him. The artist never forgave himself, for the beach, the local people had told him already, was cursed, cursed by a priest in the lean, starving, famine times, when the fishermen coming in wouldn't share their catch with the famished parishioners, and now the sea itself is hungry, a monstrous thing. They told him, but he didn't think it was true. He painted the water instead, so beautiful in its shifting shades of Persian blues and Prussian blues that it lured a woman to her death. Then they gave us the Wi-Fi password and a box of Lego for our son to play with, and we fell asleep that night, listening to its sobbing roar, safe, while others, far away, faced the dark in rubber raft trying to cross a different sea, an ocean just as hungry. Wow, that's that's uh, almost got me in sort of into a trance because of the, I, I suppose, being Irish, maybe we're brought up thinking about the the mythology of the sea as well. And I'm, 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 I'm asking myself as you were reading it out, is it true that during the famine that the fishermen were doing that? Well, it's certainly the story we were told. So, really, I, mean, I suppose it's, it's it's in oral memory somewhere, but where the truth of it lies, I suppose, is sort of buried in the past. But that that time, that famine time, I think, stays with us. That idea of hunger and want. Yeah, that's that's something I thought I thought about recently again because of the lockdown, because of the. The huge uh, shift in perception about health, I think, if you think about health, particularly as women in, you know, in, in the 20th and early 21st century, where up until this, everything was just about your your body image, you know, being slim and all that type of thing. And certainly for me, that's gone right out the window. Yeah. Suddenly your priorities <laughs> seem to shift. Don't yeah. I'm just like happy I'm here. I'm relatively healthy and so on and so forth, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So, listen, just going back to more recent developments, um, late in October of 2020, you were given a grant from the Arts Council of Northern Ireland um, to develop a project 
that's called The Ink on the Page. Can you tell us about this fascinating project, Maeve? Um, okay, so The Ink on the Page um, is about the Ulster Unit. And the Ulster Unit was a passionately internationalist art collective um, ambitious, they tried to, or they aimed to create an understanding of and a market for modern art in the avowedly traditional 1930s Northern Ireland. Um, and they had this exhibition in 1934, which sought to unify disciplines. So their exhibition contained um, sculpture, pottery, etching, architectural design, um, oil and watercolour, and exploring new media in an attempt to bring contemporary art closer to design. Um, they were really avant-garde, forward-thinking, and they included a high number of women artists, which was sort of reflecting the increasing involvement of women in the arts and crafts society at the time. And the secretary of the Ulster Unit was the poet, um, curator and art historian, John Hewitt. So their one and only exhibition took place in Belfast in December 1934. And the show received really mixed critical reviews. It was even called Hocus Pocus um, by the Belfast newsletter. And it was an abject commercial failure with hardly any work being sold. And they never showed together again. So in the ink on the page, um, what I wanted to explore was what became of their ambition and their manifesto. Um, while several figures from the unit went on to prominent artistic careers, so painters and sculptors like John Luke, Colin Middleton, um, George McCann and John Hewitt, I suppose himself as a poet, um, what I wondered was what became of the women. Um, so I began my investigations with Artifact One, Fermanagh Landscape, which was a poem I wrote based on the life and work of Kathleen Bridal and this poem was then long listed for the Seamus Heaney Award and was in the Community Arts Partnership Poetry Emotion Anthology and this sort of inspired in me then I thought well this is just one of the artists what became of the others um, so this began the basis of the research project um, the Ink on the Page which I began in October and I'm working alongside my good friend and fellow writer Laura Morgan and since then, we have been conducting interviews with family members. We have located paintings that were believed to be gone for good. And we have been collating together academic and genealogical research. And we'll be continuing this um, right through the spring. Okay, fantastic. So um, Kathleen Bridal that you've mentioned, um, can you tell us a bit more about her, Maeve? And, and maybe if you felt like reading out your poem? Sure. Um, well, Kathleen Bridal was one of the artists from the Ulster Unit. And like me and like so many of us, she appears to have always been drawn to water. Um, she was the daughter of a coast guard. So she was brought up around the coast and she eventually made her solitary way to Enniskillen, um, which is the town perched right on the Fermanagh Lakes and right on the edge of Empire. And she made her home there. So I found her a really fascinating figure. And the the quality of her work to be just this kind of she had a long artistic career and you can really see how it evolves and changes over time and mm -hmm. so I wrote this poem Artifact One from Anna Landscape based on really I suppose an imagined painting because I wondered what her work would have looked like when she showed it as part of the Ulster Unit in 1934 and um, I looked at art that she then created in the late 1930s and 1940s um, to try and get a sense of that and through this 
through this art, through this work, try and get a sense of who she really was. Um, and I will read the poem and you can judge for yourself whether I have got to the heart of the matter. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Maeve. Artifact One for Mana Landscape. My work at that time was sparse. Parochial, they called it later. Isolated. It was true in a way. I was, for so many years, completely alone. A colour palette that eddied between spare and muted. Watercolours of pale sand spits with jagged rocks, fallow fields. Hydrangeas bowed under the very effort of being alive. It would change later. I would transition through gloomy shadows of church interiors, leaving me feeling curiously light and free. Rainbows of colour would catch fire on my canvas in my vivid bluebell scenes, 17 years later. But first, a self-portrait in oils, three years after the end of the war, one of the wars in any event. I was satisfied at the time with the full, frank gaze, the lightly expressionist touches. A woman, unadorned, unashamed, uncompromised, who met the viewer's eye. It was only so many years later I appreciated just how very sad I looked, just how very sad I was, so weighted down. The violence, yes, the long hours in work, too, but also palpably the solitude. It is written there beneath the skin, a shapeless, rootless living map of alienation. Perhaps it was my birth across the sea, in Kent, my father a coast guard, an upbringing some would later call peripatetic, a nomadic existence. But it always felt to me that the difference I carried within me was deeper, inscribed in my bones. After all, nowhere stuck, not Hollyhead, not Dublin, not London, nowhere until I reached Enniskillen, a town balanced precariously on the water, on the edge of empire in a newly constituted state, a state that mirrored my own, in the place I made my home. The silver waters, the leaden skies, spoke to some hidden part of me. I didn't sell much work that night. I was a founder of a unit that could not stay united. But my work remained my life until the very end. And if I kept secrets, held something back, it was simply just, the way I was. Kathleen Bridal died at Lakeside Nursing Home, Belnalek, on the 25th of May, 1989. She is buried in Brandrum Cemetery. Many of her paintings are untitled. Wow, that is extremely powerful. And actually, as a poem, it it, it entirely reflects what I'm um wishing to achieve with with the podcast and well what's that just bringing out for for both listeners and for guests uh, exactly that connection with environment and Mm -hmm. in her particular case how she obviously had this nomadic existence presumably because of her father and it was only until she got to Enniskillen that she felt that she had come into her into her own environment the place that mirrored her 
Yeah, and the sort of, I suppose, the, the bravery and the independence sometimes that you need to have to find that place, particularly as a woman, um, a single woman on your own in those days, um, to sort of strike out away from your family and away from your friends and find that place is really quite inspiring. It is. It is. You know, that's really fantastic. Um, <laughs> you, you, I mean, you say even in those days, in those days it must have been, I'd say, at least three times more nerve wracking than, than these days. But even still, there's still, sadly, I think, there's still uh, a thing about a woman doing these things by herself. I think there absolutely is. And it's one of the things um, coronavirus has really brought to the surface is, you know, it's the difficulties of for people who are on their own. Um, you know, they've been sort of in a way they can feel very isolated and stigmatized by the kind of government policy that families have been able to mix and people within a household can be together. Um, and yet we have this whole nexus of single people um, throughout our cities and our communities. Um, sometimes they're older people. Sometimes they are our creative people um, who are particularly finding the isolation and the loneliness at the moment really tough. Yeah, no, it is. It's something I've, I've, I mean, as I said to you before, we actually started recording, you know, I suppose I'm, I I feel I'm quite privileged because of the fact that I'm in a bit of a cocoon and it suits me as a person, but I do have a partner and also a ridiculous amount of animals with me. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very aware, you know, I'm very aware of, of people both back home and in other places for all sorts of range of reasons. As you said yourself, maybe, maybe that they're older or creative or, you know, people can be obviously by themselves for, for all sorts of reasons and, and often by choice, you know, but now it's so different, obviously. Yes, and it was interesting reading the policies in other countries where people can, seems to be quite open, somewhere like the Netherlands where it's perfectly fine to have um, somebody that you are meeting up with in terms of the need for companionship, um, whether that's a friendship or something more physical. And yet in our maybe slightly more puritanical society, that aspect of somebody's existence is kind of ignored at the moment as part of the restrictions. And um, yeah, it just makes us so aware of how stigmatised um, people's choices can be. Definitely, definitely. So, listen, going back to your your day to day environment, Maeve, mm -hmm. uh, which I imagine if I <laughs> if in the future when things are gone back to, you know, uh, uh, something similar to what we were used to, but probably quite changed. If I was to be in Belfast, I can imagine probably no better guide than yourself. If somebody, <laughs> I have been to Belfast decades ago at this stage, but if, if somebody like myself was coming over who really didn't know the city, where would you recommend, uh, first of all, somewhere to stay? Now, this takes me back because my very first job at a university was working um, in the Belfast Visitor and Convention Bureau, as was called then. So um, oh, really? I spent a lot of time writing up copy for tourist guides and finding places for journalists to go when they came over. Um, so it's been a while. But um, I suppose visitors to Belfast tend to love the city centre and Cathedral Quarter in particular, and rightly so. It's um, a very lively and kind of cultural part of the city. Um, but mm -hmm. I would say if, um, if somebody wants to come and really experience Belfast, then they'd probably be better off in one of the city's little sort of urban villages, which are dotted around the place. Um, I'm quite biased um, in that I will 
be preferring Andersonstown, of course. But there's also <laughs> Ballyhackamore, the Ormer Road, the Antrim Road, and the various kind of lovely little eateries and cafes and cultural centres dotted around here and our lovely parks as well. So, so many places to discover, which are, I suppose, just off the beaten path. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and what about if somebody wasn't able to stay in your own home, where would you actually say to them, okay, this place is really nice for whatever reasons, where would you recommend? Uh, so, I mean, we spent our wedding night in the Merchant Hotel in the city centre, which is an old bank building. And it's just, I mean, you, you need a substantial budget to spend more than a night there. But let's just imagine in this fantasy future that we have a substantial budget to spend. Um, it would be hard to go past staying somewhere like the Merchant Hotel. Okay, okay, I can I can understand that. Um, and what about so we're 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 going to stay with the idea that we have a fairly large, substantial budget to play with. Where where would we go for for a lovely evening meal out? Oh my goodness! So, um, favorite treat restaurants for me. I love food. I love cooking it. I love eating about it. Um, <laughs> eating it, <laughs> eating about it. I love cooking it. I love eating it. I love reading about it. Daydreaming about it. Um, I know some people have kind of limited patience for things like tasting menus and wine pairings but have to say those no, are absolutely I, I my jam <laughs> <laughs> so for a treat I love um there's a wonderful restaurant called Ox which is down on Oxford Street um it's right beside the Lagan um and you can see the kind of sculpture um which I can never remember the real name of I think it's called no it's gone um don't Everybody worry. in Belfast calls it Nula with the Hula. Um, so it is a kind of sculpture of a lady holding a big circle up. And I'm sure it has a lovely name, but it eludes me at the moment. Um, you can see that from the window. And they do the most wonderful um, tasting menus at the weekend. And they put a lot of um, focus on sort of local food. And um, particularly the way they prepare vegetables is really amazing. It brings real flavor to the plate. And there's another one called the Mother's Club which is hidden away up Warehouse Lane in Cathedral Quarter. And it is another place which is just absolutely lovely if you've got um, a great budget to play around with. Okay, okay. Now let's let's talk about, we'll say it's our last night, Maeve, of a trip where we, we had a lot of money to begin with and we've actually, <laughs> we've spent most of that. Where are we going for our like more casual meal then when we've run a bit short of money? Uh, so many and especially at the moment it's so essential I think to support all our neighbourhood favourite places after the awful year that they've had so locally I would find it really hard to go past Temple in Andersonstown for beautiful food that seems to suit everybody and really warm welcome I always end up there for family occasions quick bite for lunch, friends from work, um, Christmas dinner with the other mums from the school that my boys go to um, mm-hmm. Also love the Bengal for gorgeous Indian food and the Cuban sandwich factory as well if you need something to eat on the go. Okay, fantastic. Okay, now uh, either before or after a meal or perhaps the meal is even taken out of the equation. Favourite bar? (laughs) Oh no, (laughs) well, favourite bar and it has been so long. (laughs) I have to say now since any of us have been in a pub. Um, I love Kelly Sellers in town. It's a very old um, bar and the Sunflower, which is a brilliant place for live music and poetry readings and has a brilliant kind of wood-fired pizza oven outside. And the Green Room in the Black Box, which is a great arts venue. And the Green Room does brilliant craft beer and they have great DJs on. And it's just a really nice, mellow place to kind of hang out, particularly after you've had a great dinner somewhere. Okay. 
Okay. Any have you got any interesting stories uh, about you know any of those bars you've mentioned stories of characters or the bars themselves? Well, any stories I have about Belfast bars shall remain forever unspoken. But I will say <laughs> <laughs> I've worked in a in a few of them and I also met my husband in a Belfast bar so they are a true institution of the city and I raise my glass to them all and I look forward to the time when they are reopened and we can go again. Oh, don't we all? Don't we all, Maeve? And, and I look forward to the time that not only yourself, but of course, I've had the pleasure to to have the likes of, you know, Malachi O'Doherty and Jan Carson, Henry MacDonald, uh, Helen Sharkey, Anne Smith and Emma Thorpe have all been on as guests and not everybody based in Belfast, but of course, in the north of Ireland. I, I will definitely be looking forward to a day where I can do a little tour safely. Yeah. In we'll the all future. Have to converge, converge on Kelly Sellers <laughs> at the end of it. That sounds great. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Listen, do you have anything that you want to talk about in terms of any other projects that you're going to be doing or you're very much concentrating on the um the ink on the page at the moment? So the ink on the page would be my main focus at the moment. Um, but we are hoping to bring the Xenophon project back again. So we were due to have a kind of solo show in the Galway Arts Centre back last year um, in the summer but obviously that was right in the middle of the shutdown um, so that hadn't well we haven't had the chance to bring that work together again so that's hopefully something that might be on the cards for later in 2021 or into 2022 so it's a project that we're revisiting um, again at the minute and um, me and Siobhan are starting to exchange new ideas and who knows what strange and new and mythical world might come um, as a result of that. Okay, fantastic. So now your your uh, website address, we, we're going to have that in the information uh, here on the podcast website and on the various channels that people can, can listen to the podcast. So that's the kind of thing, Maeve, presumably you'll update your website whenever you have good news about being able to, to, to do that, right? Yes, as soon as things start to reopen and we start to have plans again, that is exactly where I'll be posting it. Fantastic. And you're a good woman to be on Twitter as well, like myself, aren't you? Yes, I sort of go in and off the old Twitter phrases as well. It can be quite good, but it can also suck in a lot of very depressing and anxiety related news. So I like to keep it to the the kind of the videos of the cats (laughs) most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. So listen, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, I very much look forward to broadcasting this and, um, also meeting up in the future in safer days. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jackie. Bye-bye. Thank you, Maeve. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Creative Places and Faces podcast. If you would like to apply to be a guest or a sponsor, be sure to check out the links below the podcast. Until next time, from all of us here, take care, stay safe, and be creative.